Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This week's episode is titled Hermits. A few episodes back, when I introduced Athanasius, I mentioned the religious hermits that he visited in the wilderness near Alexandria and Egypt, bringing them food. As a young man, Athanasius honored these men who'd forsaken the ease of city life to pursue an undistracted but, well, difficult life of devotion to God. Just who were these hermits? And what moved them to such a radical departure from the lifestyle modeled by Jesus and the apostles? While the theology of monks and monasteries evolved over many generations, its earliest foundation rested on the example of John the Baptist, that forerunner of Christ who was something of an ascetic. His normal haunt was the Judean wilderness where it intersected the Jordan River. He wore a less-than-fashion-conscious wardrobe and ate a strict organic diet grudgingly provided by the wilderness. The earliest hermits put great weight in Jesus' counsel to the rich young ruler to sell his possessions, give it all to the poor, and then follow the Lord. They embraced the New Testament's frequent idiom that the flesh is in battle with the spirit and vice versa. They concluded that flesh and spirit are irreconcilable. Hermits literally renounced the world by leaving the cultured life of the city to live in a primitive setting in the wilderness. This lifestyle of deprivation and discomfort was regarded as the truest route to unhindered communion with God by the hermits and a growing number of their admirers. The first time we see a written expression of this emerging mindset is in that document known as the Shepherd of Hermas, which was written about A.D. 140. This early Christian tract defines a higher and a lower route that believers can take in their devotion to God. Faith, hope, and love are a lower route that's required of all Christians. But for those who aspire a closer intimacy with God, self-denial is also required. This denial of self took many forms, with celibacy and renouncing marriage as one of the more radical, yet one of the more popular. The practice of penance became common with believers, moved to dramatic acts of charity and bravery in order to prove their devotion to God. When persecution was a frequent threat, Christians used penance as a way to compensate for moments of weakness and fear. But of course, the martyrs were luminous heroes that even some pagans admired. Now, with the repeal of persecution, the church needed new heroes and found them in the hermits who engaged in extreme acts of self-denial. The earliest monks were hermits, individuals who took refuge in the desert, hinting at where they got their start, in Egypt, where the desert is plentiful outside the fertile strip of land along the Nile. The word hermit comes from the Greek word for desert. About A.D. 250, a 20-year-old named Anthony took Jesus' command to the rich young ruler to sell his possession and follow him, literally. Anthony sold everything and went to live in an abandoned tomb. Legends quickly grew up about his battles with temptations that took visible form in attacks by demons, seductive women, and even wild beasts. Anthony emerged from each battle with a greater sense of devotion to God that inspired others, and they followed his ascetic example. Soon hundreds were making their way to the wilderness to pursue a life of rigid self-denial. Anthony was Athanasius's favorite, and since Anthony lived to be over a hundred, he was alive when the future bishop of Alexandria was taking supplies to the desert monks. Athanasius wrote a biography of Anthony, which became wildly popular. 
This book, more than any other factor, helped boost the esteem and appeal of the hermetic life. Monasticism grew apace with the newfound imperial favor under Constantine and his successors. It's not difficult understanding why the number of ascetics jumped, and monasticism became popular at the same time that the church and the state were buddying up. Being a Christian was no longer dangerous, so the sincerity of many new members declined. When people realized that belonging to a church was a social and a political plus, the sincerity factor dipped even further. Genuine believers noted the sagging quality of faith among so many of the church's fair-weather friends and chose to respond by embracing a more rigorous path. The models of that era were the monks, those standout Christian heroes who had attained an honor similar to those once given to the martyrs in the previous era. And hey, I don't have to get my head chopped off. Cool. So the monks of this time weren't so much fleeing the world as they were protesting a worldly church. Part and parcel of the hermetic life was an isolated individualism that stands in contrast to the communal life that was modeled by Jesus and the apostles and we find urged in the New Testament. You don't have much of a body of Christ when it's just one guy in a cave. Hermits found refuge in the wilderness, an easy way to avoid the temptations of the external world, but what of the far more dangerous inner temptations of the soul? Things like pride and envy. Now, the temptation to pride for a monk would have been obvious. After all, it was easy for the desert ascetics who'd taken the supposed hired path to consider themselves better than others. But how could envy be a problem when they were all living alone? Well, they lived alone, but they had plenty of visitors. Pilgrims made their way out to meet them and catch a few moments with those considered now to be living saints. As these pilgrims made the rounds of several hermits, they reported to each hermit the extreme act of penance and piety of the others. Not wanting to be outdone in a show of devotion, hermits endeavored to outdo each other. So they went on extreme fasts, ate bizarre foods, lived in trees on tops of pillars, and refused to bathe. As their acts became more bizarre, their fame grew, and soon thousands were flocking to see them. One hermit named Simon Stylites was so put up by the crowds that were coming to see him, he erected a pillar that he lived on top of for the next 30 years. People would send up food via a rope and basket. As with any extreme, it didn't take long before a calmer and more reasoned way challenged the decidedly non-biblical ultra-individualism of the desert hermits. About A.D. 320, someone remembered Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 that says people shouldn't be alone. Hey, maybe these hermits that we've made into living saints aren't really hitting the mark after all. An ex-soldier named Pacomius formed the first monastery. It was a place where Christians could pursue devotion to God in a communal setting. Instead of each monk deciding for himself how to live and what to do, drawing on his experience as a soldier, Pacomius set rules for the community. All members wore the same uniform, engaged in similar manual labor, and kept the same schedule. While Pacomius's monastery was the first that we know of for men, women were already engaging in their own version of communal life. That had been necessary since women weren't allowed to be hermits. Their isolation would have made them a tempting target for criminals and brutes. Nonus is the feminine form of the word monk, and so the women who pursued the communal life were known as nuns. Their cloistered commune was called a convent. The monastic movement spread north out of Egypt into Syria and then west into Asia Minor, 
which at that time was the most spiritually dynamic region of the faith. Once monasteries took root in Asia Minor, they spread rapidly across Europe. When Athanasius died in the spring of 373, three bishops from Cappadocia and Asia Minor picked up and continued to carry the standard of loyalty to the Nicene Creed. Basel, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa. These three greatly promoted the monastic movement. Basel was especially important because he's the one that authored what's known as the rule of discipline that framed monastic life for generations after, and does so to this day in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Throughout the 4th and 5th centuries, monasticism gained popularity and infiltrated every level of society. The communal life of the monks reinfused the church with a sense of purpose and a return to the piety that had marked the church's early years. Martyrdom was replaced by a wholehearted devotion to God through renouncing a career of worldly success in favor of one that was lived in the imitation of Christ. In order to obtain this ideal within the context of communal life, monks took vows of obedience, poverty, and chastity. These were attempts to limit the battle line of temptation and sin by renouncing possessions, self-will, and the sexual urge. Monasteries helped put an end to the problems that were common to the earlier hermits, idleness and eccentricity. They became centers of social renewal and scholarship. By the 6th century, most church leaders had at one time been monks. One of the most notable monks from this period was Jerome, who lived about 340 to 420. He began as a hermit in the Syrian wilderness. Despite his best intentions, Jerome was plagued by sexual temptation. The only relief that he could find was when his mind was preoccupied by an overwhelming intellectual challenge. Someone suggested that he learn Hebrew, which proved to be an effective prescription against temptation. Once he'd mastered Hebrew, he traveled to Rome where he became the tutor of one of the leading bishops there and met a couple of brilliant women who under his training became as skilled as he in teaching the Bible. When Jerome fell out with some other monks at Rome, he moved to a monastery at Bethlehem where he spent the next 22 years translating the Old and New Testament into Latin. At first, Jerome's translation was criticized because he used the street language of his day rather than the more refined classical Latin of antiquity. People considered his Bible vulgar, but it didn't take long before opinions changed, and the Latin Vulgate was widely and wildly popular. The Roman Catholic Church used the Latin Vulgate as their official Bible until recent times. The man who had the most significant impact on monastic life was Benedict of Nursia, not far from Rome. Benedict was educated in the capital, but when he was exposed to the extreme asceticism of the hermits, cut short his schooling in favor of a solitary life in a cave about 80 miles south of Rome. He spent three years there studying the scriptures when local monks came for a visit. Impressed with his learning, they asked if he would become their abbot, that is, the monastery's leader. He agreed, but when the discipline that he required proved too rigorous for the monks, they tried to poison him. So he fled, taking with him little more than a wisdom born of failure. Instead of chalking up his ouster from the monastery as a sign that he wasn't cut out to lead, he instead refined his ideas on how to conduct community and began a new monastery at Monte Cassino, just south of Rome in 529. When Benedict died 13 years later, he left behind a pattern for monastic life that became the standard for hundreds of monasteries and helped safeguard European civilization during the intellectual declension of the Middle Ages something that we'll return to in a later episode. It was at and for the Monte Cassino Monastery that Benedict wrote his famous rule, 
The rule was a brilliant merging of pragmatism and psychology. Benedict had learned how to administrate a commune of believers to enforce necessary discipline, but without being too harsh. He began by taking the basic monastic forms that were already in place, and then added to them a system of discipline that weeded out the lazy and the insincere. He knew the only way to accomplish the aims of a monastery was by maintaining authority and discipline, but the required obedience had to be such that an ordinary person could give it. Benedict had failed in his earlier attempt because he expected the monks to follow his own level of discipline, which he now realized was greater than all but a few could emulate. Benedict's rule established the role of the monastery's abbot as sole authority to whom the monks owed unwavering and unquestioned obedience. But this authority couldn't be arbitrary. And so he made the selection of the abbot a choice for the monks themselves. His rule for the abbot was that any major decision must be made after consulting the monks for guidance. He warned that going against their counsel was both unwise and unsafe. He cautioned abbots against an unchecked exercise of their power. In a move that seems prescient, Benedict advocated that each monastery become a world unto itself. Work of both a manual and mental nature was seen as crucial to monastic life and central to their devotion to God. Each monastery became a self-supporting community, dependent on the outside world for little. What this meant was that as the Roman Empire dissolved, the scholarship of the ancient world was preserved in the Benedictine monasteries, where it was read, studied, and copied for generations. Those monasteries became the storehouses for the knowledge that would reemerge in the Reformation and Renaissance, lifting Europe out of the Middle Ages. As we end this episode, I want to read some lines from The Rule of St. Benedict. The first degree of humility is prompt obedience. Idleness is the enemy of the soul, and therefore the brethren ought to be employed in manual labor at certain times and at others in devout reading. The sleepy like to make excuses. The abbot ought ever to bear in mind what he is and what he is called. He ought to know that to whom more is entrusted, from him more is exacted. And finally, he should know that whoever undertakes the government of souls must prepare himself to account for them. As we end... I want to say to both casual listeners and subscribers of Communio Sanctorum, thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't done so yet, please drop by the Facebook page and give it a like. If you access Communio Sanctorum through iTunes, please rate the podcast and leave a review. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.